Welcome to the Region Biome Podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Team Felix Turcotte, a certified integrative health practitioner, level one and two, certified in blood chemistry and functional lab testing. I love helping people with GI issues, weight loss, mold exposure, heavy metals, misters problems, and health optimization. I love helping people get to the root cause of their health struggles and simplify healing. Ready to transform your health? Go to regionbiome.com and click book a call. All the support is greatly appreciated. If you enjoy, please write a five-star review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. Enjoy the podcast and please share this with anyone that this would help. Well, welcome to episode 17 of the Region of Our Podcast. So today's episode, I have the incredible guest, Dr. Christy Sutton, coming on for a part two of our conversation. So today we're going to be diving deep into the conversations and connections between Crohn's disease, celiac disease, genetics, methylation, women's health, and conception. So again, we will be exploring how these factors intersect and influence each other. Uh, we're going to be shedding some light on important insights for those navigating these conditions. And so get ready for an enlightening discussion. So again, before we begin, please note that the information shared in this episode is for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. So again, we always recommend consulting with your qualified healthcare professionals regarding your specific health concerns and conditions. Before we begin this show, quick shout out to our sponsors by Optimizers, which have been part of my day-to-day routine for quite some years now, along with all my clients, uh, their top supplement, Magnesium Breakthrough, which offers seven forms of different magnesium. So it's been absolutely incredible to improve my sleep. And then they quickly recently had the release of their Sleep Breakthrough for a couple of months, their new formula 2.0 will be coming out soon without some GABA, but uh, this formula is really, really uh, key to promoting a healthy sleep, but also detoxification, uh, supporting your gallbladder, your liver with some glycine and taurine and with some quite um, strong dosages, So, which I really, really like. So these high therapeutic dose, uh, along with a little bit of zinc to support methylation and some magnesium and B6 along with this. So it's really important when you're looking at magnesium or other types of blinds, you want to have the cofactors along with it. So Bioptimizer has been generously offering a 10% discount to all our listeners. So with code regionbiome, so you will be able to save 10% off on all other products by optimizers.com. Our second sponsor is BodyBios PC. So phosphatidylcholine, a key nutrient that is absolutely important for liver health, gallbladder health, prevention of fatty liver, and for cell function, cell communication. So without this, we cannot make proper cell so in the body, which is crucial for multiple systems. And what I like about BodyBio's phosphatidylcholine is that they actually offer a form that is liposomal, so it's a lot easier for people to actually absorb and so it does not go to waste. Uh, and the second thing is it is also tested for glyphosate, so it's glyphosate-free. Uh, it is a uh, soy listed form, but it's non-GMO. Uh, a lot of people have issues with this, um, you know, and have concerns because it's ba- soy-based, but it's actually... It does not have the sort of protein in it, which is absolutely amazing, and is also gluten-free. So there is high, high, high quality. So definitely, uh, you can go and save 15% off on all of their products, and then with code RegionBiome. But now let's dive into the show. Well, welcome everyone to episode 17. So again, with Dr. Christy Sutton. So part two of our conversation that we had previously on episode 15 uh, around 
iron overload, amacromatosis, anemia. So, but today we're going to be diving into uh, celiac and celiac disease, Crohn's disease, multiple digestive issues, and so and conversation around genomics. And so, uh, again, welcome again, Dr. Christie Sutton, to have to have you back on the podcast. Thanks. I'm excited. Amazing. So I know in the past, so you've uh, some previous episodes, so you've shared with me as well that you have yourself dealt with Crohn's disease or, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know where you are in your journey, but, uh, and I'd love, this is, I think, uh, today's day, it's a, well, I can call it, it's, you know, digestive issues. It's, it's, a, it's a real plague. It's a real epidemic that we have, I think, worldwide. So there's so many, I was dealing with uh, chronic digestive issues for so many years, for three years of IBS, nothing severe as like IBD, Crohn's colitis, uh, never to the extent, luckily, right? But also there's, um, I know there's a key part with genomics, but also environmental that and epigenetics that comes at play when it comes down to that. So definitely I'd love to, you know, if you can share your experience and what's going on with Crohn's and yourself, your story, I'd love, I think that would be so interesting. um, Well, my story, I guess, technically started, I was diagnosed when I was 16. Um, of course I started having, I'm 41 now. So if that gives you kind of an idea as to the timeline of that, but I was having a lot of digestive problems before that I was having a lot of, um, diarrhea and, um, I was also, I had a, not the most, um, charmed period of my life during that period of time. There was a lot of emotional stress from my family and, um, other sources. And I was, um, making a lot of bad diet and, you know, lifestyle choices. Um, granted I was 16, so, you know, um, not making great dietary choices is pretty common. I think it's more, it was like my parents were letting me make bad dietary choices at that point in time. Although I do own up to buying my own fast food a lot. So, but my, father, um, he's a medical doctor and he kept kind of giving us antibiotics for, I remember I get, I got a lot of antibiotics like, oh, you're having digestive problems. Here's some antibiotics, that type of thing. And, um, I think that probably just kind of pushed me closer and closer towards ultimately having Crohn's disease. Certainly, you know, genetically predisposed. We can talk more about that later, but, um, there were certainly a lot of environmental factors, whether it was, you know, at some point in time, an infection at some point in time, maybe some mold exposure, lots of antibiotics, which are, you know, going to destroy your gut flora and just kind of set you up for leaky gut, that type of stuff, um, food allergies. And I, um, at the age of 16, just got really acutely ill and they, took me back for surgery, thought I had appendicitis and they took out, they went in to take out my appendix and they realized, well, my appendix was not the problem. It was actually, well, they took out the appendix anyways, but they actually found it was my last foot of my small intestine was severely inflamed and I had a fistula. And, um, so they removed that last foot of my small intestine and sewed me back up. And, um, that was in the late nineties. So there were not as many, um, biological type medications available. Mm -hmm. They put me on a drug called 
azacol, which is kind of like an NSAID with maybe a little bit more anti-inflammatory, not super powerful, didn't really do much good. And the because it, I got sick with Crohn's during a time where they didn't have as many therapies, I was kind of doing what they gave me and it wasn't working. It, in a way, kind of allowed me to experiment with other things, but it also made me kind of sit back and say, okay, I want to get to the root cause of this. And that was a process. That process didn't honestly really start until I was in college. I feel like I kind of just wanted to get through Mm -hmm. high school and be like normal, whatever that is, even though, you know, Crohn's is not normal, but I was, didn't really fully understand what it fully was going to mean to me. Just kind of, um, trying to slip it underneath the rug and live my high school years out. And then when I went to college, it, was something that I had to really face head on. And that's when I started to really explore the holistic health route because I didn't just want to live this sick life. I didn't just want to, you know, be on drugs. I wanted to figure out, you know, how to be healthy. And that was a long journey, but I feel like that's, it was in college when my journey really started. Um, But it was very bumpy And I ended up getting extremely sick at one point in time and had to basically drop out of college to um, just kind of recover. I was weighed around 70 pounds at that point in time and I was in my 20s. Um, But that that sickness was from having um, just chronic diarrhea. I wasn't absorbing any nutrients at all and I was experimenting around with my I was experimenting around with my diet. And at that point in time, there was a book called Breaking the Vicious Cycle that I read. A friend of mine gave it to me and um, it's kind of like an oldie but goodie. Um, It was, I think, pretty revolutionary at the time. Now, if you look at it, it's like, oh yeah, you know, stay away from these grains and that type of stuff. And But I think for the time it was written, it was really um, huge, at least for me. And, um, so it, that's where I learned about staying away from grains and really like a diet that could potentially be good for irritable bowel disease, sorry, inflammatory bowel disease. And so, um, I just kind of put myself on a a pretty severe elimination diet, um, where I was most, mostly eating, um, fish and vegetables and some chicken and stuff like that. So very, you would say, would you say very Mediterranean? Maybe Mediterranean. I mean, I had no grains. I was, it it was fish and veggies and um, I had such a sensitive, just so sensitive at that point in time. Um, But that really helped me. And then I added some digestive enzymes and that's where I kind of started experimenting around with supplements and finding, Mm. oh, these really helped me. Um, And then I got a little bit brazen and I did something that I see happen a lot with patients and I started feeling better. And then I kind of started testing the limits Mm -hmm. and I went too far. Um, And it was basically just me. I ate, you know, all this cashew butter one day, but that was enough to, for whatever reason, throw me into this 
downward spiral that, Mm -hmm. you know, got really sick. Um, But yeah, I do see that a lot with patients. They, you know, they're kind of like, do I really have to eat this way? Am I better now? I'm going to try that food again. And then it blows up in their face. But I think that's part of the process of like accepting the reality that you truly need to eat a certain way. Um, So, but eventually what happened was from my trials and tribulations, I ended up at a chiropractic office in Austin and um, Dr. John Bandy, he's one of my mentors and I became a chiropractor because of him, but I walked into his office and I didn't really expect much because um, he was a chiropractor. And like most people, I thought, well, how can a chiropractor help me with this? What am I doing here? Why Mm -hmm. did somebody tell me to come here? And I almost didn't even go once I realized um, that he was a chiropractor, but I'm glad I did because he helped me tremendously. He, at that point in time, I was already on a really limited diet and he put me on, he told me to take niacinamide, vitamin B3. And he said, you know, almost all the Crohn's patients he's seen, they get off of gluten and cow milk and take niacinamide, then they get better. I think that's an oversimplification, but it really worked for me at the time. And so I um, started taking the niacinamide and my diarrhea went away that day, which at this point in time, I was like 70 some odd pounds. So the fact that the diarrhea Mm -hmm. went away and I could start gaining Mm -hmm. weight was a really big deal. And it was a process to kind of nurse my health back, which, um, you know, just restoring my health, gut, et cetera, really learning what I can and can't eat. And then... um, you know, there's been lots of chapters. I also, it took a while for me to finally get to the point where I realized, oh, sometimes I have diarrhea because I have bile diarrhea, which is something that happens when you don't have that last foot of the small intestine. And when you don't have that last foot of the small intestine, then that's where bile is absorbed. So bile is secreted whenever you eat something fatty, Mm -hmm. then your gallbladder, your liver makes the bile and then it stores it in the gallbladder and then the gallbladder secretes it into your intestines when you eat something fatty. And so it then is reabsorbed in the last foot of your small intestine. And if it doesn't get reabsorbed in that last foot of the small intestine, then it will go into the large intestine and act like a laxative. And so that when it acts like a laxative, it causes this really kind of urgent diarrhea. And that is something that um, from my personal experience and from my patients that deal with this doesn't get really properly managed or diagnosed very well. And so, but I eventually realized, oh, I have this now, now a big part of my managing my digestive issues is managing the side effect from the surgery. So because they removed that last foot of my small intestine, I don't have, you know, I have to take a bile sequestrant to bind the bile so that it doesn't get into my large intestine because I don't have the hardware for absorbing the bile that Mm. last foot of the small intestine. Hepatic recirculation. I can't recall right off the bat, but Huh, yeah. that's, that's so interesting. So because actually when you talked about that, because I actually had um, a previous client as well too, as, as uh, I think some Crohn's disease patients do have part of the colon removed as well. 
Isn't that correct? Yeah, so Crohn's can affect any part of your digestive system, unlike ulcerative colitis, which is just your colon. And Crohn's can affect anything from your mouth to, you know, your anus. And so mm-hmm. um, the most common part that is affected is the small intestine, especially mm-hmm. the last foot of the small intestine. But it is um, non-discriminatory. It will go after the colon, unlike ulcerative colitis, which is um, a problem, but specifically goes to the colon. And ulcerative colitis doesn't go through all of the layers of the digestive system, whereas Crohn's, it can go all the way through all the layers, which is why Crohn's can create fistulas. So, you know, both of them are inflammatory bowel disease and both of them are bad. And I'm not just saying Crohn's is worse because I'm, you know, biased because Mm -hmm. I have Crohn's. They're both bad. Crohn's is worse. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I mean, that's, that's super impactful. It impacts so many people. And I think mm-hmm. this, this, this client particularly, I think had four feet of her colon taken out. So there's not much left. So it's really, really right. hard. And then, you know, any time you have any part of your digestive system taken out, you're mm-hmm. regardless of if it's, you know, for a cosmetic reason, like bariatric surgery, you know, or a medical reason because of Crohn's or colitis or cancer, there's always side effects to that. And that's where what I've experienced and seen is that the medical profession's not, when I say the medical profession, like the doctors who are supposed to be in charge of managing these patients are not good at managing the side effects or even diagnosing the side effects. And there are many, and those side effects vary depending on, you know, the person, their situation, and what part of their digestive system is affected. So, like, I don't have that last foot of my small intestine. Not only do I now have to take a bile sequestrant, which creates other issues that I have to manage, like vitamin, fat-soluble vitamin deficiencies and, mm-hmm. you know, being low in good fats. And, you know, it's just all a matter of managing at this point in time because I don't have that part of my body anymore. So I have to manage it. But I also have to um, be very aware of the fact that I kind of have a chronic battle with SIBO. And it's something that like, if Mm. I eat too much sugar, I'm going to have a flare up because I don't have that ileocecal valve. So the ileocecal valve will... Mm. Um, separate the small intestine from the large intestine. And it's like a door that shuts to stop the backflow of bacteria and food from going from the colon, your large intestine, up into your small intestine. And it's important because, you know, the colon has a lot more bacteria in it than the small intestine. And if you don't have that door shut, the ileocecal valve, which I don't because that door was surgically removed, then you're going to get that backflow of bacteria Mm -hmm. from the large intestine to go into the small intestine. And that's called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And that can, I I talk about that in my gut workshop, just like the other stuff, but that's a really big deal because that can create a lot of issues with inflammation, leaky gut, Um, and that's another issue, you know, being bloated, that's another issue that doesn't often get properly treated and diagnosed. That's fascinating. So now I didn't realize, so yeah, especially that last part of the small intestine, that's, that's crucial. So, so Mm -hmm. now obviously, so 
what specifically the things that you found that has been helpful, you know, to help you out the most? For, yeah. So, um, well, I, I have a high maintenance, complicated body. Mm. Um, and so that's one reason that I've kind of gotten so savvy about healthcare. I jokingly say, you know, the reason I know so much is because I'm just trying to survive myself and, you know, help my family survive. It's, you know, survive, self-survival here, self-preservation. Um, so I have to be very careful about my diet, just like, you know, really anybody with inflammatory bowel disease needs to be very careful about their diet. Um, I have really only had one true, true Crohn's flare since that time when I was diagnosed when I was 16. I think the other ones I were more of like, I, I guess in college you could call that a Crohn's flare, but I think that was more of like a nutritional deficiency type issue. I did have a Crohn's flare a couple of years ago. And um, I thought that prior to that, I thought, oh, I, you know, I've got this thing figured out. I'm good. I just eat this certain way. And then I kind of slowly started adding more things in, doing that thing I tell people not to do, which is pushing the boundaries. And for me, it was like sugar. And I just kind of was having some weakness periods during, you know, the whole COVID thing and eating more mm -hmm. food, foods I shouldn't. I'm not trying to make excuses. It just happened. And I did have a flare up shortly after eating way too much sugar. And it was a combination of I got really sick with a virus right before we went out of town. And then we went out of town and we were eating out a lot. And I got into, I think, probably some gluten at a restaurant and ate too much sugar. And it was a perfect storm. And it created what was basically an infection in my small intestine. Again, I have that no ileocecal valve. So I had to, you know, so there's a lot of bacteria that are coming up into my small intestine. And I just basically fed those bacteria when I was eating all that sugar and my immune system was already kind of in a state of um, disequilibrium because I was getting over this virus. It wasn't COVID. It was just, I hadn't been sick in a while and my immune system was kind of freaking out. Um, so um, that was a, that was a pretty scary flare up. Mm. And I, it was a, also a learning experience because that was my first like real serious, like I could be admitted to the hospital type flare up. And what I realized was that, um, yes, I did have a gastroenterologist, but I was still stuck in the system of like them trying to get me in for an MRI, me having to wait days to get the MRI. He wouldn't treat me until I got the MRI. And that gave me about four days where I was acutely ill and my only option was either be admitted to the hospital or try to get it under control myself with the tools I have. And to give you kind of a numerical value on how sick I was, I had over a, one, a nearly 100 C-reactive protein um, when I was wow. acutely ill. So that's, that's no joke. You know, that's serious inflammation. Exactly. Well, 100. Um, yeah. Normally... You'll see people with chronic inflammation at about, you know, in the nines, the tens at the most, right? Or so, but yeah. this is like. I have never been that high in my life to my no. knowledge. 
normally I'm a normal C-reactive protein, you know, like under three. So I just jumped up to very, very high and I had to get it down. And I actually have lab work that shows like, okay, I got it down to 70. I got it down to 50 because I kept doing labs to see like what is going on. And eventually um, I did get the MRI and the MRI showed that I had an abscess and they put me on antibiotics and steroids and, you know, healed up. But, and then I was inundated with, you've done this without medication for your whole life. And that needs to end is what the doctor was telling Mm -hmm. me, the gastroenterologist. And I was, I was scared because I was like, oh my God, that was a really scary experience. And I've learned like how important it is to keep people um, healthy and out of this system. But also, like, I don't want to lose any more of my intestines. And so, um, and they also on that MRI thought that I had a fistula. Um, Subsequent MRIs showed that, okay, we're not really sure that's a fistula. Maybe, maybe not. Um, So anyways, the doctor said, you should really just try this period of this intibio, which is this IV infusion. And for the first time in my, you know, over 20 years of having Crohn's disease, I tried, you know, one of their medications. I gave it a good, um, probably seven or eight months. And, um, I didn't notice a lot of improvement. I got extremely sick, upper respiratory infections because mm. it was shutting down my immune system. Exactly. They're immunosuppressive, right? I think there was a, yeah. a, a late drug for IBD, but it really cuts down the IL-6, but it really does, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. a massive toll on your immune system. Yeah. Yeah. And so in Tibio, they say it just shuts down your immune system to your digestive system, but that is not actually true. It shuts down really like the secretory IgA part of your immune Mm -hmm. system. And so that includes your respiratory system as well. And if you look at the side effects, you know, it, there are other side effects that include upper respiratory infections, you know, you're at an increased risk for TB, um, even some cancer, stuff like that. Just, you know, it doesn't give you warm, fuzzy feelings. So, (laughs) What made me decide to finally say, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore was at the end of that six months period, I got a calprotectin and calprotectin is a stool test to measure inflammation. And I'd been monitoring the calprotectin kind of throughout this period of time. And it had gone up really high when I was having my acute Crohn's flare, and then it started to come down. Um, And then I got one calprotectin right before I got on the immune suppressant in Tibio. And then I got one after six months of being on it while I was still on it. And my calprotectin had gone up. And I was like, my inflammation's not coming down. I'm getting upper respiratory infections. I have, I don't know what side effects that I'm, you know, potentially opening myself up to, but this is not something I really want to do. So, um, I got off of that and, you know, now I have really tried and I think been better about my diet. Again, I have to be very careful about sugar. I have to be gluten-free. I have the celiac gene. I've never seen anybody with Crohn's disease. I take that back. I've seen one person with Crohn's disease that didn't have a celiac gene. 
and that was an anomaly. Everybody else I've seen with Crohn's disease has a celiac gene. Every single person I've seen with Crohn's disease, whether they want to admit it or not, has to stay on a gluten-free diet. And that's one of the problems with a lot of these drugs and doctors is that the doctors are not really fully on board or understanding of how important the diet is for managing these people, myself included. And the drugs suppress a lot of the symptoms. So, you know, you put somebody on a really strong immune suppressant, it shuts down their immune system. And then, yeah, they can eat foods that they have a problem with, you know, like maybe they are a celiac patient at has Crohn's and you shut down their immune system and yeah, they can eat gluten without, you know, hurting as badly, but is it still doing some serious damage? Yeah. And is it then also, you know, suppressing your immune system, opening you up to other things you don't want like cancer? Because in the end, your immune system, it doesn't just go after infections. It actually goes after like cancer cells. So it's a very complicated wire that us autoimmune people have to walk. And I, you know, having lived with an autoimmune disease for over 20 years and, you know, had lots of patients with them and like, you know, thought about this and written about this and taught about this. I still like autoimmune patients are the hardest. They're the hardest. And when I hear people say things like, oh yeah, I can cure an autoimmune disease. That's, I kind of feel like, Mm, I don't know if you really know what you're telling these people because that's kind of like a dangerous thing to say. Once you have an autoimmune disease, then at some level, like you have to manage your health for the rest of your life. You know, you, you want to remove as many triggers as possible. And there's lots of different triggers for autoimmune diseases like viruses, bacteria, chemical toxins, heavy metal toxins, stress, mold. mold. Yeah. Toxins, period. Toxins, period. Um, you know, even vaccines can be triggers for autoimmune mm -hmm. diseases. You know, I'm not making this stuff up. Look up on PubMed. Um, you know, uh, so there's lots of different triggers for autoimmune diseases and that's why they're so hard because, you know, you have to find, and remove those triggers. Here we're back. We're redoing the uh, the last part, two-thirds of the uh, part two of our episode. So we'll be diving back in into, so I know there's some of the questions that I had around for listeners. And with the story that you shared about yourself with Crohn's disease, um, and so uh, how it was and how it's been for maintenance and maintaining, because like you explained in the previous podcast, uh, at the first recording, so that uh, part of the small intestine was removed, which is the end. And so that has had a big, big, big impact with um, with your overall health and uh, how I think this is really impactful. So this, that, that, that was fascinating to me because I actually did not uh, recall that or understood that part that when you get that small, uh, the last, so this is at the end of the small intestine, correct? Yes, yes. So last how time. it has an impact on the ileal cecal valve, so allowing bacteria from the, the colon to to enter inside the small intestine as well. So now this is something that is happening all the time for you. Is that the case? Yeah, it's pretty okay. much like a chronic battle. <laughs> and so like for those people that have had surgery, so as people with Crohn's, so like what would be your top tip or things that you would re recommend or things that you yourself that you can, can 
continuously uh, apply on a day-to-day basis. Uh, if that's the case, if you had an operation mm-hmm. and you had that, sm- that small part of the small intestine removed, what would you yeah. do in that case? For for people that have had like intestinal uh, surgery, um, well, yeah. So there's so many different types of intestinal surgery, whether it's, um, you know, affecting your esophagus or your stomach or like if they're doing a bypass surgery where they're bypassing to try to lose weight and stuff like that Um, or like a loss of your small intestine, which is more common with Crohn's or a loss of your large intestine, which can happen with ulcerative colitis, um, some with Crohn's and then, you know, cancer. So there's so many options. So if I was to answer that as just a general, like, um, kind of something that could potentially help all of those people to support their intestinal health, what I would go for is, um, Something with a fair amount of glutamine and what what I personally use and like to see, you know, what I see good results with is the GI Complete by Epigenozyme. Now, mm-hmm. if you just look at the ingredients in that, there's, you know, a lot of glutamine, which glutamine is key for healing up the intestinal lining. And then um, it also has some things like marshmallow root in it and slippery elm and things that just kind of keep that mucosal lining healthy to keep it protected. So I think that's a really good place to consider. Um, Taking butyrate, uh, you know, the ketone butyrate is really good, especially for the colon. So if you've had some type of a colon, um, that's particularly good, any type of colon surgery or any type of cancer, the butyrate which is just a short chain fatty acid is kind of, um, the fuel for healthy colon cells. And, um, so that can help heal it up and, you know, prevent leaky gut. Um, a good probiotic, um, just good probiotic to take kind of, I think everybody needs to have that cycling and to some point at some level. And, um, and then just generally, um, supporting your health and your immune system with things that increase immune tolerance. So, um, like vitamin D, glutathione, um, those type of things. But if you start, if if you just look at those as like an umbrella of these are just generally good for the digestive tract and good for one's health generally as a general statement, that's a pretty safe place to start. Now, if you narrow it down to where somebody had surgery, mm-hmm. then because different parts of the digestive system all have different roles. So, you know, if you remove the first part of your small intestine, you're not going to be absorbing minerals. This is where, and if you absorb the last mm-hmm. part of your small intestine, you're not going to be absorbing B12 or fats or fat soluble or list out fat soluble vitamins are actually largely absorbed in the first part of your small intestine too. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if you remove something along the middle, then you're going to be that, that affects, you know, all the different amino acids and carbohydrates and stuff like that. So, and then if you remove your colon, then you're going to have a lot of issues with, um, dehydration, electrolyte loss, because that's where a lot of the water is absorbed. So you have to look specifically at And then if you have an issue with your stomach, you know, that's where the hydrochloric acid is made. Um, So you have to kind of look at where is the deficiency and then 
that's where, you know, the personalized healthcare comes in. So like for me personally, it's important that I am good about B12 and fat soluble vitamins. Um, and in general, I kind of have to be a little bit more careful about all nutrients because I'm missing a part of my bowel that absorbs mm-hmm. nutrients. So, um, I don't and that's, that's something I think we did talk about uh, that is so important because, and that's fascinating that all and all the different parts of the small intestine and, and the colon as well, right? Uh, they all have and serve a purpose. And we did touch base a little bit on the FUT2 genes or the specific, specifically being a secretor genetically or being a non-secretor. So a lot of people with Crohn's, do you see them mostly either both non-secretors. or non-secretors yeah. most of the time, right? So Yeah. And, and that's what the research really shows as well is it, it's interesting um, if you break down um, I wish I had it, in front, but there's this chart I have in my gut and immune workshop where like it breaks down the secretor versus the non-secretor and like the health problems associated. Both of them have their pros and cons. Being a secretor has a pro and con and being a, non, being a non-secretor has a pro and a con. Exactly. And so the non-secretors, they are just more likely to get Crohn's, celiac, um, more autoimmune type things. And then there's certain infections and, and they're less likely to get as many infections like early on in life, like as very young children. Um, whereas the secretors are more likely to get infections, um, like H. pylori, norovirus, and, um, and, and more infections early, early in their life. And, Part of, I think, the reason, I think there's a lot of different reasons why the non-secretors are more likely to get these autoimmune diseases, but I think part of it is that maybe they don't get as sick as early in their life, and part of being healthy Mm -hmm. is getting sick, especially early early in your life when your immune system's kind of developing tolerance to the environment, and this is where I have this concern, and I think it's, you know, not just a concern that's not founded in reality, that um, a lot of the kids who didn't get exposed to as many um, bacteria, virus, and stuff from being kind of se- separated from the rest of the world are going to be more likely to have more infections, or sorry, and more likely to have more autoimmune diseases later, like eczema, celiac, Crohn's, all that. Um, and we see that kids who grow up in the first world countries are more likely to have autoimmune diseases and these type of issues. Whereas kids who grow up in third world countries where they get exposed to all these infections, they're less likely to have those. And it's just a matter of like your immune system's going to find something to go after. Um, But that's kind of a little bit outside of the scope of the secretor, non-secretor, which I'm happy to talk more about if you'd like. It's an interesting topic. Absolutely. I I think like immune, immune functions. And uh, I think, the big thing is really the terrain. I think it's been big in the industry right now in the functional space as the, 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 the talk about the, all the terrain of the, either the body, the microbiome has a huge impact on, um, on our health and immune function versus, you know, cleanliness. But yeah, we can definitely uh, elaborate yeah. on that. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, a good place to kind of build from is an understanding of what is a secretor versus a non-secretor. Um, so the, how that affects your gut microbiome, which then affects everything. So 
if, you know, everybody has their blood type, which is the, you know, they're either O, A, B, whatever. And basically what happens is based on your blood type that you get these little sugars, oligosaccharides is the scientific word for them, but they're basically these little sugars that are on the outside of your red blood cells. And depending on what sugars are on the outside of your red blood cells, that determines what your blood type is. So if you are a secretor, which is a totally genetic thing, then those little sugars are not just on the outside of your red blood cells. You also, they're on the outside of your intestinal lining. They're on the outside of your, your skin. Um, they're on the outside of like, they, they line your vaginal lining. Um, so it's like being, you know, secreted within these different parts of your body. Now, non-secretors, another total, just depending on your genes, non-secretors, they don't have those little sugars, little oligosaccharides on the outside of their intestinal lining or, you know, their vaginal lining or their skin and, or their nasal, you know, it's just, it's there, they don't secrete those oligosaccharides. And what that means is that what we know with certainty is that the people who are secretors in their intestinal lining, meaning that they have those little sugars on their intestinal cells, they have these little sugars and they secrete. And so they are more likely to have more bifidobacterium because those bifidobacterium, they come along and they bind to it. They bind to the little oligosaccharides and for that reason, they have more bifidobacterium, which is really important if you want to have a healthy digestive system. And if you want to decrease your risk for an autoimmune disease, then lots of bifidobacterium is a great way to do it. Now, non, but, but you have to keep in mind, these little sugars, they also like to bind to other things that are not necessarily good for you either. It's just they're out there to bind to stuff you know, these little sugars are out there on your intestinal cells and they're willing and able to bind to things and they're not particularly sophisticated about, oh, I'll bind to that, but not to that. Um, and ultimately what has happened is there's been bacteria like H. pylori, which is a pathological bad bacteria that have evolved to bind to the same thing because, you know, that's evolution. You know, this bacteria is going to do better and find a host and survive better because it can mimic that bifidobacteria and bind to that secretor oligosaccharide. So the non-secretors don't have those. And so they tend to have much lower bifidobacteria. Now they still have some in them. It's just going to be a lower amount, a lower ratio. And those are the type of people that, you know, they're going to probably need to supplement more with a good bifidobacteria probiotic. And that's a good thing to know because again, if we go back to what is the most important, one of the most important things in our body, it's our microbiome and our gut microbiome. And so if you just genetically don't have the little sugars to attach to the good bifidobacteria, then you are going to need to take more good bacteria, those type of things. So that's just one example of how it kind of plays out. 
I like the analogy and I think it makes a lot of sense because I am a secretor myself. So, um, so obviously more prone to towards, towards other things like norovirus, like you, you mentioned H. pylori. Uh, but it's fascinating because I had this huge conversation lately on gallbladder health, HGL, hydrochloric acid, and how many people do have even some genetics in that department, uh, part of low stomach acid. Um, but how it really starts, um, digestion starts in the mouth. So really, truly. hundred percent um, starts in the mouth. Yeah. You know, even comes down to chewing like, mm-hmm. or, you know, making saliva. The thoughts. Yeah, the thoughts. yeah. You know, are you relaxed enough to make saliva? You know, are you taking the time to chew your food? Um, and then from there all the way down through the rest of the system, it, it's like, um, we are conditioned. It's just like Pavlov's dogs. So Pavlov's dogs, are, are you familiar with Pavlov's dogs? No, I'm not. Yeah. Okay. So Pavlov's dogs was this psych, um, psychological experiment that they did a long time ago. And basically they were all these dogs. And I think the researcher's name was Pavlov and they had all these dogs and he would ring the little bell and then the dogs would try would start um, getting conditioned that every time that he would ring the bell, he would feed them. And so he did this time and time again, he'd ring the bell and then he would feed them. And then he did this experiment where he, and he measured, you know, the amount of saliva and then he rang the bell, but he didn't feed them a number of times, but they were still conditioned to create that saliva. And so this is where like, it's important to not necessarily, you don't want to like eat your meals at your work desk because your work desk is where you're working. really working. Yeah. And whether you're aware of it or not, your brain is not going to be making as much saliva as it would if you, and not just saliva, but hydrochloric acid, you know, digestive juices, digestive enzymes, it's not going to be helping. It's not that the vagus nerve is not going to be firing as much, stimulating the digestive system. And so that's where it can make a difference just, you know, going to the same place every day or, you know, eating at the same time. Your body is conditioned to make more of those, you know, digestive enzymes and have Mm. that reaction at the same time. So this is where like living in a chronic stress environment is going to suppress digestive function. And that's where a lot of people end up with a lot of digestive issues and constipation and, you know, hypochlorhydria where they don't make enough hydrochloric acid. And then if you don't make enough hydrochloric acid, you're more likely to get infections and it just kind of becomes this vicious cycle. Yeah. Oh, that, that's fantastic. So it's just good tips and especially, you know, in the world that we're living now, fast paced people are cutting their time or just on the go, fast, 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 eating as you're driving or eating as you're working. So absolutely. Mm-hmm. So obviously digestive support is a must. And I get there's times and places that is, um, you know, we must still eat, but I think digestive support is a huge one. Um, yeah. But one, one great topic and about celiac, how uh, relevant this is nowadays. And, you know, there's a lot of people that uh, may be walking around with a potential genetic risk towards celiac. Um, so how impactful is that um, 
you would say, and because it has impacted your life as well. And thus, you know, we all know that gluten nowadays is completely different than what it used to be way back then. And so this is why I often hear some clients as well. Oh, I've just went to Italy. I went to Europe and then I ate gluten over there. And I was completely fine. I had zero bloating, but I came back to the U.S., or Canada and had my regular gluten and it is a nightmare. So um, maybe we can yeah. talk about that. Oh, I, 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 you bet I can talk about that. Um, yeah. So when it comes to genes, celiac is one of the top ones that I am looking for, paying attention for, concerned about, talking to people about. And um the reason for that is because it's so important um, and it poses such a huge risk and it is a somewhat common gene, at least in the population of people that I see, which, you know, it is most common in Caucasians, although it has worked its way all the way around the world, um, but it is very much in a higher percentage in Caucasians. So, but it's everywhere and um, it is, Personally, I have a celiac gene. I attribute it to a large number of my problems. Um, I inherited the celiac gene from my mother, who was a paranoid schizophrenic and very, very mentally ill. And I believe that a large part of her mental illness was due to undiagnosed celiac disease and Two-thirds of people that have celiac disease do not have, if you look, if you take a biopsy of their gut, they don't have damage to their digestive lining, but they have neuroinflammation. The celiac disease is creating an immune inflammatory reaction to their nervous system. So the problem with this is that the gold standard, although I don't consider this the gold standard, but if you were to ask, you know, 100 gastroenterologists, then a fair amount of them would say the gold standard is to take a biopsy of the duodenum, the first part of the small intestine, look at it underneath a microscope, see if there's intestinal damage there, put them on a gluten-free diet, go back and do the biopsy again, and see if they get better on a gluten-free diet, take them off the gluten-free diet, go back and do another biopsy, see if it gets worse. You know, to me, this is archaic and stupid. And, you know, anybody that's still doing this is um, probably a gastroenterologist that's getting paid to do it. Um, But it doesn't make sense. You know, you could try a gluten-free diet and see if your symptoms go away. You could do a blood test. Um, you could certainly look at that for that celiac gene, which doesn't diagnose celiac disease, but it tells you if there's a genetic predisposition. So, but circling back around, you know, celiac disease is thought to be a digestive disease. If you, if you ask a thousand people, they're going to say, you know, what is celiac disease? And they have heard of it. They're probably going to say, oh, that's, you know, you eat gluten and it makes, messes up your gut. Yes, it can do that. But what celiac disease is, it's an autoimmune disease that is triggered by eating gluten. This is not a food allergy. This is not an allergic reaction to gluten and wheat. This is an autoimmune disease that is triggered by eating gluten. So whenever the person with celiac disease eats gluten, their immune system will go and attack 
a part of their body, whether it's their intestinal lining and destroy the intestinal lining so that they have, maybe they, maybe they don't even know it. Maybe they don't even know they're having a problem with their intestinal intestinal system, but they're getting nutritional deficiencies, or maybe they're having diarrhea or constipation. Um, maybe it's attacking their um, their cerebellum, as it does with gluten ataxia, and then they have this you know wide based gait because they're dr- walking around like they're kind of drunk and off of balance because their cerebellum's getting damaged, which is a common area that celiac disease likes to go in and go after because the cerebellum looks, that part of your brain looks a lot like the gluten protein. Maybe, oh, and then these people with the gluten ataxia, they also, they get an intention tremor. So if they go to touch their nose or do something, they get an intention. They get a tremor while they're trying to do it versus a Parkinsonian tremor, which is like a tremor while they're resting. So, um, Maybe it attacks, attacks their uh, frontal lobe and, you know, they get mental illness, bipolar, or schizophrenia. Um, maybe it attacks their skin and they get what's called dermatitis herpetiform, which is like a rash on the skin. Um, it's a clinical chameleon, this disease. It can look like literally anything. And part of that is because it can and does attack the digestive lining. And when you destroy the digestive lining, not only are you creating inflammation and leaky gut, which, you know, affects the whole body, but you're also creating vitamin deficiencies. And vitamin deficiencies are very common, but not commonly diagnosed, especially here in the United States. So I can testify for this. I literally nearly died of pellagra when I was in my 20s. I had a horrible vitamin B3 deficiency, was almost dead from it. Started, I was had, had horrible diarrhea from the vitamin B, B3 deficiency. I started taking the vitamin B3 and the diarrhea went away. That's pellagra. The only reason I knew that I had it was because I went to this brilliant chiropractor in um, Austin, who I later, you know, went, went to chiropractic school to work with. So um, me personally, I have celiac gene. I um, also have Crohn's. I have only seen one patient in my whole career that had Crohn's that didn't have the celiac gene. And I've looked at a lot of patients with Crohn's. Um, I think that they are largely connected. And I think every patient I've seen with Crohn's, they do better on a gluten-free diet, whether they want to admit it or not. Um, and they all have that gene. I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, Mm. I think it's just for, for Crohn's people, that celiac gene tends to affect their gut more. Um, now, some people can have the celiac gene and it will not turn that gene on. Like they never develop celiac disease. What I see more often, the most common scenario that I, and, and that can happen, that can happen. But the medical myth right now is that that is common. There's this medical myth that if you have the celiac gene, like if you just have one celiac gene, you know, it's not really that big of a deal. You're probably not going to get celiac disease. Um, that's a myth. What I see is that most most people with one celiac gene do have a health problem from gluten, from gluten, whether it's celiac disease or not. It could be gluten sensitivity. It could be a wheat allergy. They do have a health problem from gluten, and they may not realize it until they get on a gluten-free diet. Or they may just never realize it. But everybody needs to know if they have this gene, 
they need to know if their children have this gene because it has huge implications. And um, if you, you know, it, it can turn on at any point in time. And because it's an autoimmune disease, like all autoimmune diseases, there are specific triggers that turn on this autoimmune disease. So like it is common for people to, who have this gene, they maybe get sick with the flu or with COVID and then the gene turns on and, you know, they had, they, they have digestive issues after that. Um, and then I think last time we talked, I told you the story about the patient who was the guy who came in and he got COVID and then he had, mm-hmm. um, this trigger for celiac disease. So I, the first appointment he came in, he was telling me about how, you know, he just had kind of more digestive issues after having COVID that had been going on for many months. And I just asked him, well, do you have, have you done genetic testing? He had, he had his 23 and me. He showed it to me. Um, he did have a celiac gene. So I just explained to him, this could be celiac disease. Celiac disease, it can often be triggered by, there's, there's, a, there's a trigger to it. And the immune it's response, often a right? virus. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Your immune system gets, or- yeah. Yeah, it can be a viral infection. It can be a lot of different things. So then he gets on a gluten-free diet digestive system gets totally better. He sends his sister in who had this weird issue where it was just like this very tip of her finger was hurting and then like it didn't have good range of motion. And she was young. She She's in her 20s. And she gave me the history and she told me, you know, I've had an injection here. It didn't help like a steroid injection. It didn't help. I've had uh, x-rays. It looks normal underneath the x-ray. I've seen multiple different people, multiple different doctors. She had seen a chiropractor. The chiropractor didn't adjust it, which I thought was kind of weird. Um, So then she comes to see me and I have the advantage of knowing that her brother has the celiac gene. And so, and I also know that celiac disease can hurt cause rheumatoid arthritis. It can cause arthritis. It can cause joint pain. And so I start talking to her about her family history. And um, I always tell people, like in my new patient paperwork, they're supposed to fill out their family history. A lot of them don't. So she didn't really tell me her family history. So I had to ask her. Everybody wants to say they have a wonderful family history. And then you start asking them and it's like, okay, that's a problem. Yeah. So she had a grandmother who had arthritis and I said, well, is it osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis? And she didn't know. And then she said, but it made her hands look weird. And rheumatoid arthritis, it kind of makes your hands look weird. Uh, Osteoarthritis can do it too. They get kind of like inflamed. Rheumatoid arthritis, it's like they get, uh, you don't have rheumatoid arthritis as far as it doesn't look like it. Yeah. I mean, I had my positive ANA at one point and then it went off. So this is why I'm not so sure yeah. how I feel with ANA, positive and negative. ANA is more like, lupus. Yeah. Right. If you, want the, you have to do the rheumatoid factor. Yeah, because the RA yeah. factor. And I know like with the client, like in the 20s, I think the conventional range is uh, 20 and above. But functional is a little lower. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. I mean, ideally, you have like zero of these antibodies, right? You really don't want to have antibodies to your body. So, um, So anyways, I told her, you know. You, your grandmother probably had rheumatoid arthritis. Your brother has a celiac gene. You might have a celiac gene. I don't know if this is going to help, but you need to get off gluten. Just try it. And so, you know, I adjusted her hand and everything and she started gluten-free diet. The pain went away. And then she, like most people, she went back and ate gluten again 
and the pain came back, which told us that it was indeed the gluten. And then she got off of gluten again and the pain went away. So in my mind, like a a lot of people might think, oh, well, that's great. You help somebody with pain on the tip of their finger. But in my mind, I saw this as really a blessing. Oh, and we had run all of her labs and all of her labs looked good. Like her C-reactive protein was normal. Her rheumatoid arthritis, everything was good. ANA was negative because I was honing in. I was like, this is early stages of rheumatoid arthritis. And I still think we were there. I just don't think it was really showing up on labs yet. I, I see this as this is best case scenario right? Mm. Um, indeed, she did end up having a celiac gene. We did end up getting her tested. And I see this as, this is where the clinical, like, this is as bad as it should get before somebody gets diagnosed. Um, you know, you have the slightest symptom, great. You have the celiac gene, great. Try a gluten-free diet, let's see. Um, my daughter has a celiac gene, bless her heart, I gave it to her. And she developed gluten sensitivity at age four. Um, got her on a gluten-free diet. I try, I, I think and make it a goal every day. How am I going to protect her from an autoimmune disease? Because once you open that door you can't really close it, like you're managing that you can, you can make it much manageable and much easier, but you have opened the autoimmune disease door and I would much, much rather just not open that. So celiac disease is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. I, could talk about it. So, you know, I, I spent an hour talking about it and the gut and immune, which is really quite long for me, mm-hmm. um, except I, only to be exceeded by the hemochromatosis gene in my iron curse workshop, which I took with you. I think I talk about those genes maybe a little <laughs> bit longer, but um, or I talk about hemochromatosis in general longer, but celiac disease is near and dear. And um, yeah, so it's so important. And it makes me think because, you know, oftentimes, like even myself, I we go through these these waves of time that we do well with it or you don't have the bloating and the gas per se from the gluten after eating it. But it's more, like you said, joint pain. And so it's going to be interesting. And for myself, even to test, because I've been I've been uh, really thinking of I think one of the markers that I always run with clients because I'm like it's worth doing it because it's not really expensive. So it's the tissue transcontaminase, the gliadin antibodies, IgA and IgG. Um, so there's I know those other labs that I like to run like for a deeper understanding of how well you do with wheat, like a wheat zoomer from another company from Vibrant. Um, but for yourself, what do you normally you would you do normally in clinic beside the genetic testing? Is there anything else? I know we did mm-hmm. talk about calprotectin for intestinal inflammation, which is so mm-hmm. important with Crohn's disease, IBD, and I think everybody should run calprotectin. And in a complete stool analysis, but is that something that you run in clinic or yourself? Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, I was just talking about this with a patient today. She, she's got, you know, this little two year old that is doing much better now, but still has some serious behavior issues. And, um, we're kind of like, what's the priority here? Because there's limited resources. We can't just go throw up, you know, a thousand dollar bill on my two-year-old today. So, uh, looked at her genes. She, we went over this today with her. She has the celiac gene. She feels quite good. Her brother has ulcerative colitis. You know, we don't know what he's dealing with genetically, but he certainly has a high risk in my opinion, sibling with celiac 
gene and brother with ulcerative colitis. I'm sure he has the gene too. I think probably our son with the behavior issues has the celiac gene. She's going to ultimately at some point in time run the test. She wants to put her son on a gluten-free diet. She's, you know, she's all in. She doesn't need to do the buy-in. She's bought in. The problem is she needs to get the family to buy in. And so that's where I think the lab test to, you know, so you, if you can, and this is what I did on my daughter. I knew when she was four years old, I'm going to have to take her off of gluten, but I'm still going to order this $300 test so that I can show, have this piece of paper to prove to everybody this is why I'm, you know, I'm not just trying to be the overprotective, you know, worry wart mother. I need the piece of paper to say it's not me. It's a real thing. And so that's where she decided, you know, okay, I would love to get the stool test and the gene test and the, you know, full food allergy celiac panel. But that um, first thing I'm going to do, she decided is, and we talked about it, she's going to do the food allergy celiac panel first so that she can show that piece of paper to her relatives and then everybody's going to have to be on the gluten-free diet. Because, you know, if somebody has a problem with gluten, they can't just be like 95 or 96 or 97 or 98 or even 99% isn't always enough. Like they really need 100% avoidance um, to truly do the test to see if it's an important health-changing um, thing to do. So um, I think there's great value in doing those labs, but I also commonly, because I think if I was, I think I'm kind of like a practical realist when it comes to being a patient, partly because like I have dealt with so many issues, not, not a patient being, being a practitioner. Like I think I'm a, a practical realist when it comes to being a practitioner. Like there's what I would like to do. And then there's the reality of like what we can do given the resources and the time and the money. And if, if you really want to help people more frequently with celiac disease, sometimes you have to just really educate them about let's try this gluten-free diet and be very, very good about it. And let's just see for, you know, the next four weeks, do you feel better on a gluten-free diet? Um, Because not, everybody is willing or able to spend, you know, the money for the labs. And unfortunately, those labs are not run on everybody like they should be within the medical paradigm. Now, having said that, in Italy, my understanding is that in Italy, they now check all 10-year-olds for celiac disease because they... Oh, wow. Yes, yes. My colleague who went there a year or so ago, and she's gluten-free. She uh, can't eat gluten at all. So she went there and she was worried it was going to be hard. And she was amazed. Like they have this numbering system where um, there's like a gluten-free number and they take it very seriously. They have a gluten-free option. They use like a different knife on it. And the way that this came into their culture is because, you know, they have socialized healthcare. And so socialized healthcare, whether it's better or worse, you know, it's different. And they do think about how to make things cheaper. And they discovered that there was a large number of digestive issues in Italy. And so they decided to, and I don't know what percentage of the Italian people have a celiac gene, but it apparently is relatively high. 
but so they decided to test everybody at the age of 10 for celiac disease and which is changed now they realize there's all these people that had undiagnosed celiac disease that get diagnosed from that and then that creates a secondary effect where like oh now that we've diagnosed one person at a family well maybe mom or dad has it and so they've got this huge population of a diagnosed population of celiac disease now and because of that they have legislation where you have to actually have you know more gluten-free within their restaurants which is amazing. Now in America, wow. yeah, which in America, what we have here is we have a huge population of undiagnosed celiac disease and those people are getting mistreated. They're running up medical bills. They're making pharmaceutical companies richer and they're, they're becoming, you know, financially and um, morally, you know, emotionally bankrupt because they're not being diagnosed with something that's easy and inexpensive to treat yet commonly undiagnosed. Um, and I have multiple reasons, like thoughts about why it's not getting diagnosed. I have a, a relative who is a dermatologist and um, there we were on a family text chain and they were basically decided that day to text about this ridiculous um, Cyrex panel that had to do with, you know, gluten and wheat and and mm-hmm. I was not having any of it. I was like, diagnosing a gluten and a wheat problem is a good thing. Running this lab is a good thing. Um, and my dermatologist relative, um, she went off about how she doesn't even want to diagnose somebody with celiac disease because of the extra expense and emotional trauma of having to avoid gluten. <laughs> And I was like, that is not your decision. That is not your, no, your job is to be a diagnostician and to educate and to diagnose people, not to decide what they are going to do. Yeah, I I agree with that. And I think in the, in the space, what I, this is why being non-licensed myself, there's part of it in that you stay in your own lane, but at the same time is the way that I think the way that conventional medicine is actually actually diagnosing things, that I think the di- the part can be really helpful and and necessary for a lot of people. But how this information is brought to the people, I think this is where I see it so often. I'm like, it does so. In my own humble opinion, it does a lot of damage for some people. The way that it's being brought to them, because there's poor education around. Okay, so now you have celiac, but what does that mean to me? Like, I'll go off gluten and, and go on to your merry way. So this is why the the after part of that, like, it's not people not being managed or not being coached or not being followed up with and how are you doing? And, you know, to kind of like, this is where I'm like, it's, it's um, we all have different genes. It's just how, how can we make this more harmonious for our bodies to just be more resilient? And so, yeah, so it's good. And, and I think this is, it's a really important thing to to be aware, and I think it should not be undiagnosed or not tested for. So right, and it's largely a genetic disease, right? So mm-hmm. if something's largely a genetic disease, then if you do diagnose one person with this gene that's having a health problem, or even if they have this gene and they're not having a health problem, 
you you owe it to them to have a conversation about you need to make sure your family members get checked because you got this gene from somebody either your mother or your father they got it from either their mother or father or both and they even if you are not quote unquote having problems well they might and they don't realize it you owe it to them to at least pass this information along so that they can get checked. And then, you know, you might have given this to your kids. And there's just, there's so much of this. And I, I see so many different facets of this in practice. Like, if you if you have a minute, I'll tell you another story. It's kind of interesting. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. So yeah, yeah. I have this patient. He's really a nice guy. I thought he actually had hereditary hemochromatosis because he had really, really high iron on his labs. And high liver enzymes turns out he was just you know drinking too much and eating a lot of red meat but his mom had the hemochromatosis gene has it and so i thought for sure he had it but he doesn't so anyways we get the 23 and me results he i talked i'm like okay you don't have the gene you dodge that bullet you do have the celiac gene and he's like oh i don't have any problems and but he's also the type of person that's like I'm not even like, I wouldn't be eating bread, right? Like no beer. Like, I don't think that's going to work. You know, it's like, we're not even going to open that as an option. You know what I'm saying? Like he, he's not, he's not even willing. He's not even willing to like allow that power of suggestion to enter his thoughts as something that could be a problem for him because the implications would be, I have to avoid gluten and that would just change my lifestyle too much. And so then I'm like, well, what about your kids? You know, this can cause a lot of digestive issues. It can cause neurological problems, you know, and he's like, well, yeah, you know, my daughter's got a lot of diarrhea, um, which is, I thought was interesting because a couple of visits before I asked him about his kids and he was like, yeah, they're healthy. They're great. And now it's like, yeah, I've got my daughter has, you know, diarrhea like multiple times a week. It's been going on for a long time. Um, I'm like, okay, she probably has that celiac gene and it has already probably started creating problems. You need to get, you know, her checked. Um, of course he has not. And that is more an issue of just, he's not like, taking the right steps. I don't think he, maybe I just haven't said the right words to get him to take the right steps. Um, so, but you just, you know, I just keep talking about it at every visit. We really need to get your daughter checked. This is a serious issue. Um, the problem is that until this gains enough traction and there's enough like big doctors, you know, this needs to come from the top down because I am just, you know, Dr. Sutton, chiropractor in Dallas, you know, no big deal doctor. When I'm saying something and they're not hearing it, patients are not hearing it from the general public is not hearing it from the other powers that be, you mm -hmm. know, the AMA, the CDC, their primary care. It's so much easier to dismiss and we can't make it so easy to dismiss because this is an easy thing to truly diagnose and treat. It's just an inconvenience. But for whatever expense and 
you know, inconvenience you incur from going through the steps to diagnose and treat it, you will save yourself and potentially, you know, your loved ones untold damage that can often not be easily reversed. So we've got to take it more seriously. And I, although my husband and daughter have said I'm not allowed to write another book because it's such a time-intensive process, my next one's probably going to be about gluten. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's fascinating. I think it's all about prevention. And I think the, to the powers that be, I mean, the medical system is funded a lot by these big corporations that feeds the problem in the end of the day. So so this is, uh, yeah, absolutely agree that we have to take, at the end of the day, so you have to take matters in your own hand. And this, the thing that you, you know, testing your own genetics and being proactive and checking your blood chemistry. And I'm such a huge advocate of that because as much as, you know, people say in Canada, oh, we have free healthcare. Well, it's newsflash for all my American friends, but you do not have a great healthcare system in Canada. By far, yes, in the province that I reside, that I live in Alberta, it's a lot better if you advocate for yourself, doctors are a lot more loose than other provinces, but still, you know, at the end of the day, paid out of pocket is the best and you get for, you get what you pay for. Mm -hmm. And even in the U.S., I mean, I don't know the ins and outs of, you know, insurance. Some people have great insurance and things and it's, but it's just, it's just so important to do it and, and being proactive. It saves you so much cost on the road, your health and the medical costs, especially in the US is just astronomical. When I look at things and surgeries, and I'm like, you know, and, and just looking at your celiac genes, how powerful that can be and alpha, and it doesn't cost anything to actually go gluten free. Yes, it might cost a little bit more of your time, uh, more of some research and new recipes and things you can substitute for sure. But I think it's where it's a very cost effective thing to do just to go off gluten for a little while and just focus on the gut. And I think a couple of these things, I think that's a uh, very powerful, right? Yeah. A hundred percent. And one, can I say one more thing? I know we're running low. Oh, time. Yeah. So- yeah. We can actually, let's see. It's one twenty-two. I have an appointment. At, yes. It's by me. We have like maybe okay. 10, 10, for 10, 15, I'll, 15 I'll more fast. minutes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. So I, yeah, it's good. It's almost one twenty-two. So here, so I still have, yeah, we can go like a good 20 minutes okay. for sure. So okay. I, um, remember you, you said about 30 minutes ago, you said that the people will go to Europe and they can eat things they can't eat here. And that's definitely mm-hmm. a real thing. Like I see that commonly people will go to Europe or, you know, they'll just leave America and their digestive system, they just feel better. They're not eating the toxic sludge that is our food. So, and there's multiple reasons for that. You know, one is like we have the GMA, GMO stuff, which has more glyphosates in it. But what I didn't realize until just recently when I was listening to RFK Jr.'s interview with Joe Rogan is, you know, he is really an... I haven't finished that one yet. It's I'm three so hours and you finish should listen it, every so. single minute of it. It's, it's so Worth good. It. He is so intelligent. And he was a part of the lawsuit that went against Monsanto and one against Monsanto bringing basically because Monsanto makes glyphosate, glyphosate causes, they've proven causes non-Hodgkin's lymphoma 
causes many other health problems, but including leaking gut, but this lawsuit was against non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. They won the lawsuit. So he's an expert on glyphosate because like he said, you know, if you're going to sue somebody, you become an expert in that subject. Well, what I didn't know, like I knew like a lot of people that corn, soybeans, they spray the corn and soybeans with the glyphosate so that, you know, the corn and, so- corn and soybeans will not die, but all of the uh, weeds will die. And, but what I didn't know is that I think he wanted, I think he said like 2006, I can't remember the year, but they actually started spraying wheat with glyphosate. Not, not, they actually started spraying it like, not like while it was on the um, field waiting to get harvested, but like they would harvest Mm -hmm. the wheat or they would spray it like right before eating it, which is different. And they did it to dry it out. And, and so the the difference in what he said is that when you spray corn and soybean, you know, the rain comes and it washes a lot of that away and it's not as concentrated on the corn and the soybean, right? It's not as concentrated on the food you're eating as the difference is that with the wheat, they're actually spraying it on the wheat that they're then, you know, putting in your food. So you're eating a much higher concentration of glyphosate, which has exactly. been proven to cause leaky gut and cancer. And it's bad news and it's pretty ubiquitous. But if you're mm-hmm. eating a food that is already very immuno genetic stimulating of autoimmune diseases, you know, people have a gene that actually makes them react to it, that with this chemical that is toxic and destroys your gut and, you know, creates problems, it's a kind of a really nasty, perfect storm. Um, And I didn't know that until I listened Mm. to that interview, which was fascinating to me. Thankfully, I stopped eating gluten before that. A lot of people haven't. That's good. And one thing, if I touch on that, because I actually talked about this exactly uh, when I did my pun one uh, podcast, uh, so on the pun one gene. So, and thanks to you, because you have elaborated to the pun, on the pun one gene in your book, uh, which I find it super fascinating. So I do have myself, I have a variant in the pun one gene, so I'm not homozygous. So I do have only one copy. And what I found with the pun one gene, so in the book, so is really connected with the uh, detoxification of glyphosate. So that was super interesting because, and this is all also the process of drying out the weed also applies to drying out hoats. So a lot of people eating Mr. Quicker and this is uh-huh. where on the host. So what they do is they spray the glyphosate two days prior to harvest. And the reason why, because it dries faster, so it does not get moldy. So, and then it gets harvested, but then this is where it goes in the silo. And, and so people are literally eating glyphosate uh, deposits all the time. So, I mean, uh, Canada is still being used. There's multiple countries uh, that have, I think are banning, I think Mexico says 20, 2030, they're banning glyphosate. I know the topic on Russia, but I'm like, Russia, I think it's probably one of the countries that has not used or not used. Don't quote me on that. Germany, I think, as well, too. Mm -hmm. But glyphosate has basically been used all across the globe by now. So, and it's very sad, like in in very foreign country, India, and 
So I'm not the, the whole expert on that. But I think the biggest thing is so important detoxification and sauna is a big one, especially with glyphosate. But it was so amazing how disturbing glyphosate is on the aromatized, um, aromatized? You know, aromatized amino acids inside the intestinal lining in the, um, oh my gosh, I go back into the, uh, the shikame pathway of these bugs are very cool. I talked about it in my previous episodes. It's so interesting how glyphosate interrupts or disturb the specific pathway, which will also enhance issues in uh, the BH4 pathway and neurotransmitters and all of that stuff. So, um, so I'll, I'll, the inhibition also in the P450 enzyme. So a lot of people with which phase one or phase two detoxification or variants in the genetics that I already see. I just saw like a client, she has a poor detoxification for aqua and acetaminophen, so Tylenol. And, and now you're taking glyphosate on top of that, but you're inhibiting your P450 enzymes, big trouble. I mean, your liver's going to suffer. Um, so it's really uh, it's a da- dangerous compound. Absolutely. And I think it's just so important that people know about that stuff. And um, so, yes, yeah, so again, I think like, knowing the impact of this compound is really important. And so, you know, Absolutely. and your Cheerios and... Um, frosted flakes, all of that stuff, all cereals, frozen not food. And, you know, this is the thing mm-hmm. I think we did talk a bit about. I think that will be for next time, um, but we'll, we'll have to talk about methylation. That's going to be another episode, yeah. I think, to elaborate yeah. about methylation, how important MTHFR, how important. And we can talk more about the PON1 enzyme at that one because the PON1 enzyme is important as far as feeding into the methylation cycle. Yes, I've, yeah, it, it is a very important too. So, yes, I think we'll we'll just do another episode. But towards the MTHFR, that's it's going to be a good topic because we already covered quite a bit in this episode for people. Yeah. Uh, but yes, it was great to to have you back on it was uh, for part Thank two. You. So now, celiac Crohn's next is going to be the conversation around methylation. I think I just love to be talking about this topic in genetics and genomics and. Bloodware, all that fun stuff. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come on my on our platform. And so it's always fun to have great conversation in, yeah. in regards to health and well-being. So yeah, thanks for having me. You do such Amazing. good work. So thank you. Appreciate it. Yes. And so I'll be putting all your information in the show notes for people that desire to take the Iron Curse course or the webinar as along with your celiac and uh, Crohn's as well as well. I think you did release the MTHFR methylation yeah. too. And there's another one for Alzheimer's neuro- and Parkinson's. Al- yeah. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Yeah. Perfect. Amazing. Well, thank, thank you, you for having and coming on and then until next time. So we'll, uh, we'll make another episode soon. So Sounds I'm really good. excited. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. I'll see you later. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Regen Biome Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly or seeking private one-on-one health coaching, or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, regenbiome.com or on Instagram at Gene Felix Turcott underscore JFT. Thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.